Amen. What a wonderful testimony in song. And I trust you have that same comfort that you know that Jesus cares for you. So thankful for our musicians. Um, as we were singing that last song and the orchestra went down, it's like, wow, where'd they go? It's great to have, I got that right behind me. You can feel the music and it's awesome. And I'm just so thankful. And I got to thinking, man, what would it be like if we didn't have the orchestra as a part of our music? I'm just so thankful for all of those who take place who, who, who practice and, and who uh, serve in their place uh, in our music ministry. For those uh, who serve in our nursery and our children's church, you get to come in here and enjoy uh, the services because we have those that are ministering to your children, not just as a glorified babysitting service. They are investing truth in your children. And we praise the Lord for that. We're so thankful for we have a safety team here that is making sure that everybody is safe, that if someone needs medical attention or if we need protection as a church body, that they are in place, they're vigilant. Uh, so that we can, without distraction, enjoy the ministry of the Word of God. We have folks on a prayer team that right now are praying for this time where we worship the Lord through our response to the preaching of the Word. I'm so thankful for our prayer team. Uh, I'm so thankful for our greeters who come in and kind of set uh, the tone uh, for our services by welcoming folks as they come in. I'm so thankful for those that are working in our audiovisual um, it'd be really hard to see in here without them. And so we're so thankful and for the live stream ministry that we have. We're so thankful for you um, that you are here today and trust that you will receive a blessing from the word of God. If you are a member, a regular attender here, uh, let me encourage you to make sure that you're having an active part in ministry somewhere. You know, if you sign up, for instance, and talk to Dania about serving in the nursery, that does not mean that Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or even one service a week, you're going to be serving in the nursery. It means once maybe in the month or twice in the month as we get more folks involved, say, for instance, in that ministry. Uh, if you want some of you guys, some of you teenagers, you would like to be on the ushering crew, see uh, Brother Burrow about that. There's an opportunity right there where you can serve the Lord. So thankful for our ushers and, and then the ministry that they have. There's a, somewhere where you can be actively involved participating in the ministry. And yes, we have other things, outreach ministries. We're going to be having, um, later this fall, we're going to be having on the fifth Sunday in October, we're going to be having a fall festival outreach on that Sunday afternoon in lieu of our, of our evening service. We want you to come and be a part of that. We're going to be going to Lilburn Days. We're going to be having an outreach. We want you to be a part of that. But you know, there, I think there is something also that is very special about why we are having services we're here on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night, that you would take some sort of active part in ministry here. And if you're not sure what that looks like or how you would do that, please let me or one of the pastors know. We would be glad to give you some options so that you can have an active part. It's kind of along the same lines, I think, of the philosophy of um, how my parents did our finances in college. They said, we'll pay half, you pay the other half. Because they understood that because we were investing blood, sweat, and tears, not only in studying, but in working to earn money to pay for that education, because we had something invested in it, we got a lot more out of it. And I believe that if you will invest some effort and some ministry here at church, when you come into these services, you're going to get more out of it. And so let me encourage you to invest. God's intention is not that only a part of the, What if only 10% of your body functioned? or 20 or 30% or 50% of your body functioned, it would still leave you at a greatly at a disadvantage, would it not? 
And I believe that it's God's intention. We are all members one of another. And Paul uses the illustration of a body. So I'm thankful for those that are actively participating and serving. But if you are not, uh, please encourage you to prayerfully consider how you can serve and make that a priority. I believe that that investment will also reap you great personal benefits um, as you come here and you are ministered to. There's such a blessing even just in serving others and in seeing God use you in some small way to be a blessing and encouragement or to make a spiritual impact in somebody else's life. That was the first message. Now turn in your, in your Bibles for the main message in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. As you're turning there, let me ask you some questions. How do you outsmart omniscience? How do you overpower omnipotence? How do you outlive eternity? Can a created being conquer his creator? And I would submit to you this morning that Satan has been messing with that quandary for millennia, wanting to somehow dethrone God. That's why he was cast out of heaven. And he never can because he is a finite created being. I am not being flippant or careless or disrespectful in the way I speak about our enemy this morning. But I want to encourage you, if you're a born again believer in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we serve a living God. And you know, Satan uses minions, whether they're world leaders or whether they are local leaders or whether they are just part of a mom that philosophically is in rebellion and opposed to God and the things of God, whether those who have been deceived into a misconception of what Christianity is truly all about, understand that those who oppose the gospel will never conquer God, will never conquer the gospel. The word of God is forever settled in heaven. Man cannot destroy it. Christianity will not come to an end because we serve an eternal God. And yet there's a balance that even those who are enemies of God can be reconciled to him. Paul writes Romans and he says, for when we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that also is our heart. But as we look this morning at Herod and what God does to Herod, I trust that your heart will be encouraged as things get darker, as persecution heats up that you will be encouraged to be faithful to God and know that he is always faithful. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 this morning, and we'll look at the first point, which is Herod is thwarted. Look at verse 18. Acts chapter 12. The Bible says, Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers. What was become of Peter? And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Now, we understand the story was that Paul, or excuse me, Peter is imprisoned. James had been executed by Herod and uh, it pleased the Jews. Specifically, it pleased the Sanhedrin, Jewish leadership. Herod was actually the king over all of what would have considered Israel proper. And uh, so when he began to vex or to abuse uh, the Christians, it was partially to gain or to cultivate favor with the Jewish population over whom he ruled. 
And then seeing that that pleased the Jews when he murdered Herod, when he murdered uh, James, Herod went about uh, to imprison Peter. Remember, we talked about the double guard. Instead of one Roman soldier that was chained to him, he had two Roman soldiers chained to him. Instead of just having one soldier outside the door, there were two soldiers outside the door. There were four sets uh, of four every three hours throughout the night they were standing watch. And the next morning, Herod intended to bring Peter to try him to have a mock trial and then to uh, pronounce the death sentence and execute him. We know that God sent his angel, and here's Peter sound asleep because he was trusting in the word of God, the promises of God, the prayers of God's people ministering to him. And as he sleeps, the angel smites him and says, get up, put on your coat and your sandals, get on your outer coat also, let's go. And the prison doors open of their own accord. They walk right past the guards. There's the big iron gate, which usually took several men to open. And they open of their own accord. And he goes out. And then the angel departs. And, and Peter is aware, oh, this is not a vision. This has actually happened. And he goes to the house uh, where John Mark lived. And there was a prayer meeting, and of course we, we saw Rhoda and her faith and her excitement. It's Peter, and then we see Peter leave. Well, here it is the next morning after this. And there is no small stir among the soldiers. Not just the four on whose watch this thing happened, but the whole, air, the whole area, all the soldiers. I mean, they are searching high and low. They are turning over every rock. They're going in every home. They are looking for Peter. They are panicked. To find Peter. Word gets back to Herod. He extends the search. He puts more soldiers on it. And when Peter's not found, he brings that four that were on watch. When Peter was released by God, they are put on trial. And under what was called the Justinian Code, if a prisoner escaped, then the guards that were responsible for that prisoner suffered the same penalty or sentence that would have come upon the prisoner. And we see that Herod had intended to execute Peter because he executes these four guards. He's thwarted. And then he escapes further embarrassment by going back to his palace in Caesarea, which really was his headquarters. But I want you to understand that this is not Peter's fault. Peter did not have a plan to bust out of prison. Okay? This is not Peter's fault. This was not some plot of his. This was God's doing. The fall was entirely upon Herod. Second of all, I want you to see how Herod self-destructs. Look at verses 20 to 23. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having ma uh, made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace, because their country was nursed by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghosts. Herod self-destructs. Now, Herod was being appeased by the ambassadors from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were part of Philistia. They were not part of Israel. They were not under Herod's jurisdiction, but they also, both of these were port cities. 
So they relied very heavily upon imports and exports. And they needed the wheat specifically from the Galilean region in trade. And it also was part of how uh, they had their food supply. So Herod was displeased with them over some trade negotiations that weren't going well. He said, we're just going to pull all of our food sources uh, from Tyre and Sidon. Don't send them anymore. Kind of some sort of an embargo. And when he did, he sets in motion a famine in those cities. This is serious. Not only was this a financial thing where it's going to send them into a great recession, but this is where people's lives were going to start being uh, endangered uh, through the threat of famine. And so they send ambassadors to Herod to appeal to Herod. They, and they, they used Blastus, the king's chamberlain, one of his intimate officers that knew him well, um, and they made him their friend. And so Blastus then sets up with Herod. He gains an audience for them. So Herod sets a time and a place where he would appear to be the most empowered, and then he plans this grand entrance. He chose a festival that had been started by his grandfather in the celebration of the Caesars and also the founding of this city of Caesarea. He had a prominent throne. He had a private entrance. He had an entourage that would have been impressive to anybody that was seeking his favor. All the important people, all of the the governors and mayors and anybody that would have been of any Political importance under King Herod's reign would have been at these games, at this festival. Kind of reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's story. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow before the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar? And you remember how Nebuchadnezzar, when some of the other men told on him, said, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing down before your image. He calls them in, he gives them another chance. They say, hey, listen, we don't have to pray about it. We don't have to think about it. We believe our God will deliver us out of your hand and from death. But even if not, we're going to serve the one true God, even if it costs us our lives. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar then has them cast alive into the burning fiery furnace. He's going to make an object lesson out of them and cause there to be fear throughout all of his empire. But what happens? God spares them. And there's not just three men. There's the son of God in there in the midst. And he calls them forth and there was nothing since. There wasn't even the smell of smoke on their clothes. And all of the governors and all the princes and everybody of any importance within the whole empire of Babylon had been commanded to go to the plain of Dura and bow down before this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's there that Nebuchadnezzar says there is no other God but this one true God. And if you say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, your houses will be made into a garbage dump and and your family will be destroyed your name will be destroyed throughout the empire for there is no god like jehovah god and this kind of reminds me of that setting because all these important people within the realm are there at this particular day herod died herod knows judaism he knew it okay and so Having known it, he renewed that receiving honor and praise that belonged only to God was a dangerous thing. His understanding of the one true God and of of Judaism and what the Old Testament scriptures taught of God, he realized that this was a dangerous thing. He had full culpability because he did not do this in ignorance. He willfully received praise and glory that belonged to God alone. And he died a miserable death in a way that displayed God's divine 
justice. Josephus, the historian, writes this account. He says of Herod, He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out from one place and another, and from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. When he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. You say, well, I thought the Bible says that he died. Well, yeah, he did die. But it doesn't mean that, that the angel of the Lord struck him. He got and was struck with worms and he died right there in front of everybody. But what it does mean, it doesn't have to, the language of the Greek does not have to be taken that way. And I believe between what Josephus is saying and what the scriptures record, I believe there is accuracy. I believe they are in agreement. I believe what happened is at that moment when Herod, in all of his splendor, receives from all places the common accolades that he was a god and not a man, that the angel of the Lord struck him. And immediately he's in great agony as the work of death begins within him. And for five days he suffers until literally he has eaten alive of worms. I actually did some research. There are some other leaders, world leaders, back during this time period that also suffered similar fates, I believe, directly at the hands of God's justice. You know, God could have struck him dead right there. Do you remember Ananias in Acts chapter 5? When Ananias comes in and Peter says, did you sell the land for so much? He said, yea, for so much. And Peter says, well, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied unto men, but unto God. And immediately what happens? Ananias drops dead right there. The young men bind him up and carry him out and bury him. But can you imagine how horrific it would have been to suffer for five days in agony, knowing that you are literally being eaten alive from the inside out? And there's nothing you can do about it. He died a horrible, agonizing death that displayed the divine justice of God. Friedrich Nietzsche was the philosopher who coined the idea or the term that God is dead and that Christianity was just a despised religion for weaklings. Yet he spent the last 10 years of his life certifiably insane and died at his own hand. Matthew 21, Jesus warns in verses 42 and 44, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And who is that chief cornerstone? Anybody know? It's Jesus Christ. In verse 44, Jesus says this. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. That's what Herod did. He fell upon James and he had him beheaded. He fell upon Peter to imprison him because he wanted to execute him. He falls upon the people of God. The Bible says that he went about vexing or abusing the people of God. Anyone who falls upon this stone, Jesus said, shall be broken. 
but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That word for broken literally means shattered. Now, if I take a sledgehammer and there's a rock and I hit the rock, the idea is to break that rock and maybe shatter it, right? And that is the idea is that those are going to attack Christ and attack Christianity. Ultimately, what's going to happen? Are they going to shatter Christ, the solid rock? No. But what will happen? They themselves will be shattered. And ultimately, one day, those who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, for God gives man the free will to choose to accept by faith Jesus Christ as Savior or to reject Him someday. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed unto men once to die, physical death, but after this, the judgment. And you'll stand before God, literally someday before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And the judgment will fall. And you will experience the second death for all of eternity. And the idea of on whom this shall, it shall grind him to powder, literally the idea is that it turns it into chaff or shaft. In other words, it just grinds him into minuscule parts and dissipates it where you cannot see anything left. Pulverize, disintegrate is kind of the idea there. You cannot fight against God and win. Although Herod was a wicked persecutor and an enemy of the gospel, though, we take no delight in his death. Listen to what God spoke through Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Let us not forget that it was Herod's grandfather that slaughtered all the children in Bethlehem two years old and younger. Let us not forget that Herod grew up hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing of Christianity, having heard the truth, even knowing from the Old Testament that Messiah would come. And rather than listen to the truth, he rejected even to the point of persecution. But I believe God in his grace had extended opportunities to Herod to receive Christ. And he had rejected those offers of God's grace. Therefore, God in his judgment stopped Herod. 2 Timothy 2, 25. Paul is writing to Timothy and Timothy is to be instructing the other pastors in this way, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. So when Paul says that, he's literally saying, Timothy, tell the other pastors that as they preach the word of God and people oppose what they, are, they as the pastors are preaching and teaching from God's word, when they reach out and love to personally confront brothers and sisters in Christ who are astray and they oppose what the pastor is trying to do in confronting them personally when they're opposing the ministry of the word of God. Look what Timothy says. It's in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, literally that oppose the ministry of the word. If peradventure God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Albert Barnes on this passage in 2 Timothy 2 says, 
Those who embrace error and array themselves against the truth. We are not to become angry with such persons and denounce them at once as heretics. We are not to hold them up to public reproach and scorn, but we are to set about the business of patiently instructing them. Their grand difficulty, it is supposed in this direction, is that they are ignorant of the truth. Our business with them is to calmly show them what the truth is. So understand that though this is a severe warning and God did this in a public way as a severe warning to those who would make themselves his enemies, that there God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But remember, yes, God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but let us never forget that he is a God of justice and judgment. God's word then, third of all, kept growing and multiplying. Look at verse 24. The Bible says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Here, Satan, Satan through Herod is trying to destroy the church at Jerusalem by destroying its leaders through persecution, specifically through martyrdom. And one of the things that I want to point out, God, in, in, in that first point, Herod is, is thwarted. God allowed Herod's persecution, but only to a certain point. And when Herod self-destructs, realize this was God, not man, that initiated Herod's destruction. It wasn't Peter and it wasn't the church plotting to assassinate Herod or cause an uprising of rebellion against Herod because of what Herod was doing. It was God himself that dealt with Herod. But then God is growing his church. And the Bible says in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. We could translate it. It kept growing and was multiplying. It is in a, it is in a present uh, perfect tense. And the idea is that it keeps on growing and multiplying. You know what? God preserves his people to be messengers of his gospel. He preserved Peter. He preserved the church at Jerusalem. He did not allow it to be annihilated. And God promotes his message throughout times of persecution. From verse 24, we see that persecution does not prohibit the spread of of the gospel. And then God uses the martyrdom of his saints to advance his gospel. Paul's spirit, we find towards this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where he says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death for to me to live is christ and to die is gain so if we think that we are willing to die for christ the question is have we already taken up our cross to follow christ have we died to ourselves that we might live unto him are we willing now to go anywhere and do anything to pay any price in order to be obedient to the commands of Christ and to the mission that he has placed upon us. For if we're not willing to do that, neither would be really, truly willing, I believe, to die for him. These apostles and many of the disciples of the New Testament church were willing, if need be, to die that the gospel might spread. Tertullian wrote in a, a phrase in the book Apologeticus. 
it's been loosely translated, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Actual literal translation is this. We multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is seed. The gospel will never be defeated. And by the way, if you or if I as a believer are martyred for the cause of Christ, we don't stop living because we have eternal life. And someday we will receive a glorified, immortal, incorruptible body. And so we cannot, in that sense, be killed. They may destroy the body, but they can't destroy the soul. And we have an inheritance to look forward to, which includes an incorruptible, eternal, immortal body. God promises to reward his saints. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul, about to be beheaded at Rome, for preaching the gospel says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. James 1.12, Blessed is that man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. 1 Peter 5.4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And then, Revelation 2.10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. God promises an eternal reward to his faithful servants. And then I want you to just see, last of all, that the stage now is set for the expansion of the gospel. God sustains continual ministry. Look at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So why does Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, include this at the end of this chapter? Well, uh, because this is actually mentioned earlier where the saints in Antioch are taking up a collection for those in Jerusalem because they were suffering persecution and they were also suffering under uh, the beginnings of famine in that region. And so the brethren in Antioch were collecting offerings over a period of time, sent them by Paul and Barnabas, faithful men, to the elders of the church, the pastors of the church in Jerusalem to meet the needs of the saints there. So, Herod dies in A.D. 44. Verse 25 takes place in the next year in A.D. 45. The ministry of the financial gift to the Jerusalem church, to, uh, from the Antioch church to the Jerusalem church, is finally delivered. And then Paul and Barnabas return with John Mark. John Mark is going to be their assistant on their first missionary journey. And so we see that this persecution that God allowed it to a point. He only allowed Herod to go to a point. That when Herod received the glory that was due only to God, which would have been blasphemous, that God's angel struck him. And he died a horrific death as a public display of the justice of God. 
but that God provided and grew his church even in the midst of persecution and sets the stage because God sustains continual ministry whether we're under persecution or not. And so we'll begin to see the story of the further expansion of the gospel through the book of Acts. But I wanted to finish with John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him, on Jesus, is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to love our enemies, to pray and to serve those who persecute us and spitefully abuse us. It is not ours to become the instrument of God's divine justice. That is his business, and he can well handle that. Be encouraged that no matter what persecution you may face personally, that we may face as a church, or that the American church may face in the future, or even around the world as the universal body of Christ, that God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is eternal. God transcends and always will rule over all his creation. God will take care of our persecutors. Paul admonishes the believers, my brethren, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. As it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We keep loving, we keep serving, we keep praying, we keep living the character of Christ. We keep sharing the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So that someday, whether we die by martyrdom, whether Christ comes back today in the rapture and we meet him in the air, or whether we die after a life of faithful service, our mission completed, when we enter into the very presence and the arms and the embrace of our Savior, he may say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Friend, have you been opposing the gospel? Have you been rejecting the offer of salvation? Have you been running from God? Please take warning from the passage this morning. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but God's love does not cancel his justice. And while the grace and the mercy of God is extended to you in the offer of the forgiveness of your sin and of eternal life, you who are his enemy deserving of his divine justice can become his child through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. Instead of standing before Jesus Christ someday as your ultimate judge will condemn you to eternal death, you can stand before him someday as your eternal savior, the one who loves you, who redeemed you, and your friend. Trust him today. Let's bow our heads as we begin our invitation. There may be some here this morning and you say, you know, 
There are people in my family, my extended family, at work, in my community. And I've had a wrong attitude towards them. And I've been reminded today that God is unconquerable. He is a God of love. God will grow his church. God will strengthen his people. God will provide for continual ministry. And rather than our eyes being on the problem and the persecution, let's get our eyes on our great Savior. The one who's commissioned us to proclaim the gospel to every creature. Maybe some are saved this morning, but there's something in your life that you know is displeasing to God. And while you'll not come under God's divine wrath, do not forget the admonition of Hebrews that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receives. And so this morning, if there's something in your life, you know you need to get it right with God. I don't know what it is, but God knows and he's been speaking to you about it. Would you yield that to him this morning? In a moment, after I pray, we'll stand with our heads bowed. We'll have a come forward invitation. You can come to one of us pastors down front. If you need to receive the gift of eternal life, just let us know that, hey, I'm not sure. I want to make sure that I'm reconciled to God, that I have peace with God, that I have eternal life. Any of those things, we'll know what you mean. And we will pair you up with a trained prayer partner who will take you to a quiet place, show you the way of salvation, answer your questions from the word of God, and you can call upon Christ and settle this matter once and for all today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there may be some situation in your life where you need to come and yield that to the Lord today. I invite you to come and turn these front steps into an altar and lay yourself upon it and spend time before the Lord. As a believer, if you'd like someone just to pray with you or you would like some counsel from the scripture, please let one of us pastors know that as well. Heavenly Father, please do that work that only you can do for your own glory. Transform our lives, save souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me as your heads are bowed as our pianist begins to play our hymn of invitation? Would you respond?